Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Heart and Hand is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. This season we've teamed up with Ladbrokes and we'll be bringing you plenty of specials. Our first is bet £5, get £20. This means if you deposit £5, Ladbrokes will add another £20 to your account. As a listener to this podcast, you can get this by following the link at bet.ibroxrocks.com. That's bet.ibroxrocks.com. We'll be tweeting this bet £5, get £20 link, adding it on our Facebook and we've put it in the description of this podcast too. Welcome to Heart and Hand Extra. My name's David Edgar. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, of course, we don't have a game this weekend, so we won't be doing our pre-match preview. What we're going to do instead is uh, have a wee delve into the history of Rangers fan culture. Now, this podcast entirely comes out of that, where it's a podcast by fans, for fans, and pretty much about fans and the fan uh, experience, the shared experience of being a supporter of Rangers. So I thought it might be interesting to to look a little bit into the history of that side of things, into supporter culture. And today we're going to talk to regular podcast guest Mark Dingwall, who is of course uh, better known as the editor of Follow Follow. I wanted to talk to Mark about the origins of the fanzine, what gave him the idea to do it, what made him think it was a good idea, where did he get his his contributors, all that kind of thing, and also about how he physically put it together. Uh, It was a really interesting chat. We're going to speak to Mark later on about the advent of the digital era and, of course, uh, the Follow Follow website, which is still going, still very popular, followfollow.com. But today uh, was about the, the history of the print edition. I enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Mark, what gave you the idea for the fanzine in the first place? I got the idea from uh, essentially punk fanzines. I'd always been into music and then my, my cousin John Dingwall, John started a fanzine called Stand and Deliver. And uh, when I saw that, I then discovered that there were other punk fanzines on the go, most famously in Scotland, uh, 
fanzines. So it was a way for them. And then I became aware of uh, Off the Ball, which was not the BBC programme Off the Ball, but a fanzine for football produced by some guys down in the West Midlands. One of them is Adrian Goldberg, who went on to the career um, famously on, on Radio 5. Um, but my main contact was with a fan guy called Steve Beauchamp, or Beauchamp, as we pronounce it in Scotland. Um, then there was another fanzine crowd called Friend Saturday comes to Luba. The two big influences was the, in terms of football was you can do this. And very quickly, there was a whole plethora of uh, fanzines popped up. So that was where I got the idea from. From somebody who wasn't really kind of aware of stuff at the time, I was just a kid, were there any other Rangers fans in at the time? I mean, certainly the first one I remember is Follow Follow, but by the time I got to it, it was the early 90s, it was established. When when you started in 1988, were there any others? So, so the, first, the first Rangers fans in that I'm aware of ever starting, you know, certainly the modern era, was a thing called World Shut Your Mouth. It had appeared at the end of the season before us, and... Um, I didn't, never saw it in sale at the ground, but I got a copy out of the Strathclyde Programme Shop, which was a real hub for um, selling fanzines and, at that time. And uh, talking to the partners on my party, this old fan called uh, Neil Kennedy. And so I asked Neil, you know, do you know these guys, you know, are they still going to come out or are they going to write? And he said, no, no, they've just disappeared. And the only thing he had heard was that the, the main fella band that had you know, got in here some other terrible, you know, waste and malady. So I never actually met the guys behind that one. And uh, the first edition of Fall of Fall came out with its, you know, blues on the colour that matters and Matt Walters and the Yeah, that was 1988, uh, as I say. Now, I know from doing this that there is a, a bit of a jump from be, from between when you go, I've got this idea and then I'm actually going to go and do it. What was it that, prompted that? How did you find out how to go about it? Um, I'd actually been involved in, in student politics for a while. So in, in those days, it's difficult to, to remember how difficult thing it was to get into print or how quick the stuff you could get. Um, probably young people today don't even know what a gestetner machine is, which was essentially um, very thick, waxy um, sheets of paper and uh, you wrote on them, and it, you know, it kind of created a carbon copy underneath. You stuck it in a machine, and you know, as if by magic, you know, you could then print things out. But it was very crude um, to get stuff properly printed. Costed quite a bit of money to get it typeset, and uh, so what a lot of guys did was essentially they used um, they used typewriters, you know, and then um, took it in and, and got, got it and. Um, Got it photographed and put together that way, so it was it was quite crude and time-consuming then. Um, then you had the miracle of the Apple Macintosh, which uh, is a very small computer. Which was, you know, when I first started college, to use the computer meant essentially going to the computer department, signing in, they got on a mainframe, and, and then coding, you know, a colon slash b whatever. Um, so they actually had this tiny little machine. Which not only was able to lay out pages, but if you were rich enough or you knew somebody that worked in an office, there was this marvellous thing called the laser writer. And I think at that time the laser writer told it costed the three grand. And that's what, you know, 30 years ago. So you had to be very lucky to know 
the night and I had to type in the whole thing from scratch and lay it out in the same night and print it off. So, you know, if you made a mistake, it was a real problem. But that kind of, that took a lot of the, the hassle out of doing layout. So I did that for a couple of editions and then I found a, another pal that I knew. He worked in a, in a place in Glasgow. So they had a, one of the first in a PC, you know, I, IBM style personal computers in their office with a laser printer and uh, the same thing, you know, I said, you know, can I use that and I was allowed to go in and, but it was all overnight, it was usually ended up on a Saturday night and you had to physically type the whole thing in um, and I won it and then lay it out and then, you know, go to the printers on the Monday. How did you get contributors? At the start there was, I think there was three of us that had kind of you know, kind of knocked the idea about it. I'd said, you know, have you seen this? And, oh, I'd been into that. And so a couple of guys, you know, had a few things to say. And then when we put the fanzine out, the first, the first edition was sold at a game at Old Douglas Park in Hamilton. Um, bright kind of summery days, I remember it, and I just started selling it outside. And of course, for the first couple of years, people would actually say, what's a fanzine or a fanzine? Mm. Um they, did, they didn't know because it was very much a kind of cult thing with the, you know, the music and I believe in America it was, you know, fanzines were a big thing with cinema fans. So I just started selling outside um, um, outside uh, New Douglas Park, and, and, sorry, Old Douglas Park, and I got my, I got my first um, criticism outside, if you remember the, the kind of mad, famous Hamilton um, fan, Fergie. Fergie, yes. <laughs> Around the corner, like in a, a band of productions following them. So I'm standing going, follow, follow, New Rangers fanzine, follow, follow, New Rangers fanzine. And he just walked within about 10 yards of me and said, follow, follow, fuck off. <laughs> and, uh, the first, but not the last. I was going to say, needless to say, all these kids were F off, your hand, and so and so and whatever. And so that was the first day that it was sold. And then quite. Quickly thereafter, you found, um, you know, I can't, I can't remember who the, who the first game at Ibrox was after that. But once you started selling the fans, it was amazing how people got into it and, and seemed to like it. Um, one of the articles I put in was about the Stonehouse Ranger Supporters Club and, you know, about how pissed they'd been at a game at Motherwell. So needless to say, the, uh, the club secretary came around and gave me a real berate and used the problems you've caused us. And that wasn't ever bus. And uh, of course, as I became friendly with George, and I went to somebody's club views, the guys who actually were on the bus went, "Brilliant! That's the best thing that's ever happened to us. What a day we had in Motherwell, <laughs> and have it commemorated in print." Um, so that so, so that told me right away you got to be a wee bit careful about what you print because you know what you think is funny might come back on you. It's a bit like um, a couple of years later talking about um, a Gandhi Kennedy that played for Rangers. We famously ended up with the model Maria Whitaker and they ended up down at um, Birmingham City. So one of our contributors said, uh, Andy's doing that well at Birmingham. The, the Birmingham City fans call him one lung. Uh, so, so the following week, I've been absolutely outraged uncle of Andy. You know, uh, so basically decrying my Protestant heritage <laughs> for all of his work and what a time scumbag I was. So again, you know, over the, over the years there have been a few articles which, uh, um, you know, whether people just disagreed with them or whether they were incorrect. 
German curve to, to have somebody, you know, landing and waving a couple of feet in front of your face. Yes. So so that was that was how we started. But very quickly what I found was after the fans even came out and, and what I I still enjoy to this day is when you actually meet people and they say, I read the last edition, like this, I didn't like that, I thought he had a point, I thought the point was rubbish or he got something wrong. And that feedback I found over the years is that the people that take time to either write to you or seek you out, um, they're usually the ones whose, whose feedback is um, is valuable. I mean, anybody can do a one-liner, anybody can send you a, a nasty letter to the post box or send you an email or abuse you on Facebook or whatever. But the punters that actually think about it and seek you out to have a chat with you outside the count, um, I, I like to think of always taking them pretty seriously. Yeah, it's a, and it's direct feedback, as you say, so it's, it's, it's a really good learning experience for you in terms of what you want to put in it. And speaking of that, what you, you've always been the editor of Fall of Fall, you've always been the arbiter of Walton, and, and I know from being a contributor back in the day that you were very hands-off. Um, you would maybe say, do you want to write an article on? Or I would say, I have an, an idea for... And that would be then, then it was you would give the contributors the freedom to kind of go off and do what they wanted with it. There was never a case of you, certainly I don't remember anything I wrote or anything anyone I knew wrote being chopped or changed or moved about. What was your overall kind of style when it came to editorial content? Did you have a conscious decision of I want it to look and sound like this or were you more this is just a big melting pot, it's for Rangers fans, whatever people are coming to me with, that's what we'll go in with. Well, uh, this might sound familiar to Rangers fans today, but probably the main motivating thing for me was all my adult life I'd seen things written about Rangers fans and our experience and what we believed or we didn't believe or what we'd done or what we hadn't done. And it just doesn't it just didn't measure up to the people that I went to games with. It didn't measure up to my experience, you know, a lot of lies, a lot of stereotyping and stigmatising the Rangers fans and I thought well at least in this wee fanzine you know, we're going to print the truth and that's essentially been my, my view the second thing that I learned within the first couple of seasons was you know I'm not a, a great writer and I would say from the last work I would say over the course of the fanzine if there was let's say a, a 52 page issue of the fanzine I probably I probably wrote six, seven, eight pages of it because I've always been very, very blessed with contributors because what I noticed fairly quickly was that a lot of fanzines are started by guys who've got something to say and it might only be two or three issues that they've got and a handful of anecdotes Yeah. and once they've said that, the fanzine dies in the vine because they don't pull in new guys or they themselves aren't capable of addressing new issues because they're just not interested or friends and family and what gets in the way. So I was very conscious from the start after the first few issues was, you know, you know I need to get some, some other people involved in this. And to be fair, you know, the um you know, picking, eventually I bought a got a post box um in Glasgow and, you know, the letters started dropping through pretty regularly, you know, with people wanting their say. I mean, <laughs> you said earlier that I didn't heavily edit your stuff. Well, I certainly used to have to edit the gubs and the major stuff. <laughs> can, can I pull it out of that? Um, you know, there's a lot of people known for their, 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 
cold-hearted views. Um, but essentially what I would do was, uh, you know, I would type the stuff in myself and then after a while as the fans would get bigger, I would, I found a, found a couple of diapers, a girl called Jay, Jay who's English and Christine, I lived in Byers Road, so I would take the stuff around to their, their flat and uh, they would type it all up and eventually a computer and I eventually managed to get myself a, a home computer and uh, so she, they would type it in the file um, and then I would I would edit it that way because the, the volume of stuff that was that was coming in. So um always tried to kinda of fill fill the mag. I mean I found after a while if you make the, the print too small you get complaints. The big thing people want is it to be legible. Yeah. And um, so there's never really been like a follow follow house tale for, for a while. What I did with we have the Macintosh was I thought it's looking a bit samey. So I used to try and make like every every single article do it in a different four different fonts so that it looked a wee bit more punky. Yeah, I remember. Um you know, so you know, it's wee things like that, but I mean nothing you know, it's never any major design guru or you know, so I mean a lot of the technical stuff just kinda of passed me by. Um but I mean I, I mean some of the stories that they might not mean anything to anybody else, but actually I, I bumped into on on the internet bumped into a guy who was just walked into this printers in, in Clyde Bank. It was fairly local to me, and uh, I got them to print the first one. And the guy who actually printed it—not just you know the boss, but the actual guy who printed it—after a couple of editions, you know, circulation went up. And so basically, man, this, this guy Tam the cook, who people in the print trade in Glasgow know, um, Tam was the printer, and he had to do an overnight shift because the the wee machine they had, you know, couldn't do it, and an hour it took them overnight. And um, he used to he used to say he said there's an old printer strip you go to sleep with your head against the side of the machine so that when you come to the end of a, a bale or a ream of paper it, it starts going with a different kind of pattern and that wakes you up and then you put in the next bale of paper <laughs> so it was wee things like that you were left you know I mean, there's you know people have got to work in these kind of conditions and that you know the printed product you see is is a product of of other people and, you know I mean we had. Uh, Eventually, we moved from there to printer down in Bridgeton and, you know, stayed with the same printers for a long, long time. Even when some of these guys get in a wee bit of difficulty with their, you know, with their, with their own businesses, you know, they restarted up under another name and I went with them again. So, you know, met a lot of good, good, really decent people that, you know, were very helpful to us. Very lucky, aren't we? Now, for a lot of people listening to this, they may have growing up when FF was in its digital phase because I mean that's been coming up for twenty years now alone. I, I think it's it's important to maybe try and get across just how influential that this was to a generation of Ranger supporters. I mean, I wouldn't have got involved in what you know you and I would call activist um, Rangers issues, you know, such as the trust and what. I wouldn't have been involved in that had I not discovered Follow Follow and. It, it was the same for pretty much everyone I knew in that circle. They'd come through that culture. There wouldn't be this podcast today. It wouldn't exist. People wouldn't be listening to it had I not bought a Follow Follow for the first time in 1994. And I remember at the time when I was buying it, and you got you met people when you were buying it, because you would tend to buy it from the same person because they would be in the same area around the stadium. And you'd get talking, you'd talk to other people who were buying it, and from that everything that, that I've been involved in grew. But when did you first begin to think this is actually starting to have an influence? This is 
actually now starting to more and more people are reading this and as a kind of further to that when did the club start to take notice yeah, um, I would say that the reaction in the media was quite interesting because first of all when they started mentioning it at all and if you remember uh, somebody did a survey and they reckoned that across Britain you know there was three or four hundred fanzines going um, at one time you know virtually every club had one or two you know certainly the, you know, the football league and the Scottish game they reckoned it was somewhere between two and three million of these things were getting sold you know throughout the United Kingdom so obviously it had an effect, an effect on the fans that were match going fans maybe not every fan bought one but you know there was enough of them to, to make an entry uh, a ripple in the pond so it started off the mainstream media kind of said oh you know uh, people that do fanzines, you know, they're, they're kind of half-wits and, and, you know, daft rebels that don't know what they're talking about, you know, the people's with delusions of adequacy, all this kind of stuff. And then when they saw that this more kind of rock and roll attitude to journalism was something they couldn't ignore, they started to put in, you know, fanzine-type things into the, their papers. The Daily Record did a kind of supplement for a few years, which was, you know, four or sorry, about four or eight pages at times. So it's definitely influenced, you know, how, how football's reported. It's become less uh, less reverent, uh, more punchy. And because, you know, well, further in those days, it was a fanzine of today, you know, the Facebook and websites and all the rest of it. You know, fans can have their say in a massive, massive way that, uh, that can't really be ignored. Um, so, you know... It, Going into you know, what was a very staid and stable um, Scottish Scottish um, football journalistic world, if you will, you know these guys have probably all operated in the same way since you know, the nineteen twenties or thirties. Probably become more coverage, you know, post war and in the sixties and seventies. But essentially, it was a it was a jolly kind of cartel between the newspapers and. Uh, the football teams, particularly the managers, so that, you know, you're great, no, you're great, and then suddenly there is this medium which, once upon a time, fans could only descend by shouting things in the terraces or grumbling about at the pub that would never get into the papers. Suddenly, things that were commonplace amongst the fans then had voices, whether it was follow, follow, or, you know, there was a whole plethora uh, a Rangers fanzines that that, um, that came about at that time um, a wee bit later was uh, number one which again that one lasted quite quite a while as well just when defunct a few years ago um, so yeah you had it on a massive scale and I think it kind of kick-started fans and thinking you know we don't need to sit and take this if I was being genuine I would probably say start the fans when we did you know was certainly wasn't an active master so at my point Obviously, you know, the whole Sunnis revolution and what came after it nine in a row, it was very much in there, uh, glory, glory, Glasgow Rangers, and you could, you know, you really enjoying your football and new signings and winning the league and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, there was that one part of it where you were having your revenge in the rest of Scottish football, but, you know, kind of giving them a bit of a kick in and, you know, Celtic at that time, just producing so many so many opportunities it was actually it was actually a bit cruel to keep on kicking them you know yeah. I mean who in the right mind would sign players called Wayne Biggins or Raphael Scheidt yes. you know I mean it's complete open goals um, so I would say that you know for the first 
eight, nine seasons, maybe a bit longer, you know, that was the kind of tone, you know, we were having a laugh, we were fighting back against the stereotype and the Rangers fans, we were running campaigns, and it was only, I mean, for me, it was really what should have been the 10 in a row season, that was when I really started to turn against Murray, not specifically because of that season, but I'd started to see things wrong with the club that I'd never noticed before. Because as a fan in the past, who even knew the name of the directors? Nobody. Nobody. No. Um, you know, you, you might have known John Lawrence was a chairman, or Ray Simpson was a chairman, or John Payton was a chairman. That but was it. people were faithless. Yeah, that was it. But his, his, his image and the way he was taking the club, I just suddenly started to think, you know, um, especially around the Tory Andrew Flo signing, I just thought to myself, you know, in my head, I can't explain why this makes any sort of, you know, this is too much money, we'll never get it back, and it's very dangerous. And after that question came into my head, you know, all the other doubts started, you know, that had been tingling away, they really started to come to the forefront, and people will say follow, follow, for quite a period of it became quite a dark fanzine because we'd seen what the danger was in the club as well as the state enemy. We saw that the way the club was been run was becoming a problem. Um, but you know what? I'd rather have done that than just sat back and said, well, we'll just have a laugh and a joke. You know, I think the thing that I've always been proud of is that, you know, if there's a campaign that's worthy of merit, then we back it, you know, whether it's done by our fans or other fans. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the fanzine was, you see, it had that mix of serious articles, jokey articles, things about fa- uh, things about um, uh, supporters' clubs, etc. Cartoons, um, some of which there was a guy you had called was it Orian, um, who is still yeah. responsible, who was a genius, and is still responsible to this day for the funniest cartoon I have ever seen. Which was it's a picture of a guy holding there's this the back end of a cow and there's a guy holding a banjo and on the back of his shot it says Van Vossen and the caption read Peter had nothing personal against the beast but he had a point to prove <laughs> which is just fantastic but um you you had this mixture of stuff what, what, what I find is that there's um there are characters kind of float in and out of the fanzine the way that players float in and out of the team but. I mean, one of the one of the earliest cartoonists was a guy called Sam Scotland who came from around uh, kind of Finniston area in Glasgow. Did some did some stuff for a couple of seasons, and then just disappeared overnight. Never found out why. Never seen him again. Tried to find him, disappeared. Uh, there was a young guy with the uh, slightly unusual name of Dominic, oh, who was through in Edinburgh. He sent me stuff, talked to him a bit, and then just I don't know whether it was you know going to uni or whatever. It was just one season he didn't reappear again. And, you know, I wrote to him and I phoned the number I had for him and it was dead and the letters got returned and he just moved on. Um, you know, a boy called Randon Rosett wrote for many years. Remember him, yeah. Boy for Drumchapel, drum travelled the world, seen a few things. Um, and then just one one day, you know, the weekend a contributor's letter they would send out saying there's a new issue coming out. It got returned, you know, gone away, what known at this address. So, you know, it's, you know, it's the people, you know, while some of the, the contributors are, are there all the time and they've got something to say, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's the way that. There are some people who 
you know, the luck of shooting staff, you know, they're there for a couple of years and then we move on and you just you just got to accept that, you know, it's like it's their life cycle as being a fan. Um if I can be a wee bit boring at this point, what I found with uh what interests me might interest some of the fans I don't know. But when the fanzine started to fade, <clears throat> I still had uh, the thing in the fanzine world was you always swapped with other people, so I would get you know like Mackles feet and fanzines and I would send them follow follow and Liverpool, whoever. And uh so I decided I, I got out the old when Saturday, when Saturday comes and I wrote to virtually everybody that had ever produced the fanzine and just said, I'm still going, do you want to keep up the swaps? If you've given it up, I'd be interested to know what you're doing now and why you gave it up. And overwhelmingly, it was, you know, said all we had to say, we group of contributors, we get all together, or we, you know, we started getting married, or pressure or luck. Um, that smaller club that tended to be, a lot of the guys that were involved in fanzines are now editing programmes or contributing programmes, um, or were working for the local paper. So it was definitely the fanzine thing for, for a lot of guys was, it was something, it was like a rite of passage and being into football, a bit like, you know, maybe somebody had a, had a favourite punk band and decided to do a, you know, a Strangler fanzine or, or a more generic one. So, you know, for me it's been something where I love having my own say, you know, and there's always been something really magical to me about the written word. I've always loved that. And one of the peculiar things I find is, even though the fanzine's designed and you send it away, it never feels real and you can never know how things are going to work until you actually get it in your hands. You know, that, that might sound strange all over the years and you know, doing 200 and odd fanzines. You never actually know what it's going to look like until you get it back. Mm. Because, you know, it's just sometimes things work or they don't work or, you know, they come out a different way. So there's always been a bit of magic. And the thing I say to people is, if I look at what's going on in the mainstream media, people are talking about Rangers and they're talking about Rangers fans. I would love to know that in 50 years or 100 years when somebody's writing about Rangers fans and they do a bit of research and maybe they find a pile of fanzines in the Mitchell Library or the end of the other libraries that were supplied, that they'll go, oh, that's what Rangers fans actually thought. Mm. Here's a voice that says, official version's one thing. The real story amongst the fans was, this is how they felt. Yeah. You know, it's making our mark on, you know, it's leaving a bit of a trace of, you know, well, the media doesn't speak for us, you know, we can speak for ourselves. And, you know, quite often it's funny, it's jocular, it's, you know, there's a few swear words. But, you know, most of the stuff, you know, fan, fans are always kind of taken down as being fodder or they're, they're so easy to manipulate. One thing I find, you find talent in the most mysterious places, you know, guys that have got utterly work-a-day jobs Yeah, um, and like I say, the, what you just described there could be this podcast because it's exactly the same. That's the motivation behind it of just that we don't hear what I think is the Rangers supporter experience in the media, and they don't even try anymore. But um, that's a, that's another thing, and it's the same thing with us. At least people we we can say in mitigation here is a stack of evidence that will tell you much more accurately what it was like to be a Ranger supporter in this period than that. Now, we'll talk at probably one of the next or, or the one after international breaks, so I don't want to do it today. I don't want to... Um, and we'll drop in our one innuendo for the episode, Mark. I, I don't want to shoot my bolt too early. 
um, with yeah, the, yeah, thank you um, with the digital edition because it's it's a whole different story and it deserves its own chapter and we will we will do that. But there was a time where they ran side by side with each other, but then as as followfollow.com grew to what it is today and it's massively even people that don't like it know what it is and other clubs know what it is uh, it's become a byword for a place where Rangers fans go on the internet so as it grew you decided to put the the, the print fanzine eventually you decided to stop doing it uh, and I think this is a good no, time to tell well, that, that's not really so the truth what I found was <clears throat> and anybody you talked to who was involved in the um, in the club scene against you know Charles Green and these deals and these people. What I found was one, I had information in my head that I didn't really feel, you know, with my sources that I wanted to put them in the fanzine. Uh, and I thought that it would be kind of breaking some trust by doing that. And I also thought it would be a bit of a break of trust by putting it out, you know, producing a fanzine, but not actually saying you know, exactly what we were up to or, or bits and pieces. And then there's also, it became, when it comes towards the, the climax in these campaigns, you know, people have only got so much time in their lives that, you know, if you're, if you're not a full-timer at it, it becomes intensely time-consuming you know, all the different, um, you know, the campaigning and the meetings, you know, all the rest of it. And so, you know, I mean, I found in, you know, Chris Graham and Mick Houston and all the people for the trust and some of the guys for Rangers Horse, it takes over your life. So for that kind of, I would say, you know, about two, two years, you know, it became, it wasn't funny anymore. It was so serious about the club, you know, that you had to defeat these people. So the fans went a bit by the by. I mean, I still get things I want to say, and I've, I've been saying to people, you know, trying to get the contributors back, you know, still get things to say. So, you know, the fans unit is coming back um, maybe not as often as it was but I, I just feel that there's something so special about the written words you know that you can hold in your hand and you can store it in a thousand houses around Scotland and put it in the, you know libraries and stuff I just think there's something magical about that you know something the way we see our club what we experience in our words and it's you know it may end up getting thrown out but I just think there'll be you know for years to come, there'll be people rediscovering, um, you know, some some fantastic writing that we've had in, and and they have some fantastic writing, whether it's the jokey stuff, the more serious stuff, the historical stuff. And I certainly think that kind of mix, you know, you're obviously quiet about your stuff, the gub stuff, um, some of the events that we promoted with, you know, like Sir Simon Leslie, you know, people like that who've got real talent about about campaigns and mobilising the club's history, you know. That's what I loved was that mix. It wasn't just the one thing. It was, you know, it was the campaign and the history, the commentary, the, you know, the frustration with players. All that you could get in their hands, and, and, and that's what I love about it. So that was part one of our discussion with Mark about the, the history of Follow Follow. And in the next one, which will happen at one of the next international breaks, we'll discuss the emergence, the growth, the influence of uh, followfollow.com, particularly the message board and the effect that it, it's had, both good and bad, but uh, everything involved in that and uh, what goes into producing it and keeping it running on a daily basis. One of the things I hope 
people take from this, and I hope people take it from the podcast too, is if you have an idea, just go and do it. And it's never been easier. If you have an idea for a podcast, go and do it. If you have an idea for a blog, go and do it. And don't worry about, is this going to be big? If you go into something like this, a creative enterprise of any kind, by thinking, it would be great if everybody read what I had to say or heard what I had to say, it won't work because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. But if you think, I think I've got something interesting and important to say, then do it. Get it out there. And don't worry about finding an audience. If it's good, it'll find an audience. And if it if it isn't, you still have done it. It's still something you can be proud of. But the key thing is just for it to be honest. Don't go into it because you think, I would like people to know who I am. That's that's not the right reason to do it. And people will see through that. Rangers fans are fantastic at spotting inauthenticity and they will know that your motivations aren't the right ones. But if you go in and you think, there's something that's not being done, there's something that I'm good at that I think I could do, you hear something from another club or from another medium and you think, why doesn't someone do that for Rangers? You do it. Get friends together. You'll have a lot of fun, trust me. It can be really influential the way that Mark's uh, Mark's legacy, I think, will prove to be incredibly influential already is for me and my life uh, was altered by picking up a, a follow follow that time back in 1994 so yeah just just go ahead and do it and even if you do a blog and it gets 200 readers but it gets 200 readers every time you do it then that's 200 people who are out there listening and looking forward to reading what you produce and if you you put it out there and it gets 200,000 fantastic it doesn't matter if it's honest and it's genuine and it's something you believe in then it's valuable and it's worthwhile it's never been easier contact me contact mark contact anyone who's done stuff like this in the past we will be happy to help you because something else is as mark touched on there this is all built on supporter culture. You help each other. You don't go, no, no, I'm the, the guy who does that and no one else can. That's not what it's for. And it's it's entirely about community. So if you feel that you've got something to say, something you want to say, then by all means, please get in touch with me. It's easy enough. I'm at uh, Ibrox Rocks on Twitter. That's at Ibrox Rocks. Or you can go to the, the Heart and Hand Facebook page, which is just heart and hand uh, on Facebook to search for it, the Rangers podcast. I really enjoyed that. I hope you guys did too. My name's David Edgar and I'll talk to you again next week. Cheers. Bye.
Heart and Hand is backed for the season by Ladbrokes. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.